We're going to be reading the first 12 verses of the chapter. We'll be going through those 12 verses together. And we stand, of course, in honor of God's Word as we've received this uh, a tradition uh, in, from the Word of God in, uh, from uh, the priest Ezra in the book of Nehemiah. So we'll be looking at these first 12 verses. Follow along as I read out of the New King James Version of God's Word. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then... Having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now, when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, Oh, full of deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And Father, we pray that as we look at these 12 verses here today, Lord, that you would have your way in our hearts as you teach us. Lord, pour your spirit out upon us. Lord, that he would lead us into your truth, that he would teach us, that he would give us understanding. God, we're, we're, we're helpless and hopeless to understand your truth without the presence of your spirit, without him teaching us without him opening the eyes of our hearts. So do that work, God, through him, we pray. And might it result in us having your word written upon our hearts and, Lord, serving you and walking with you more closely than ever. God, have your way with us now, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You guys may be seated. As we begin the 13th chapter, we switch gears here. 
Uh, we, we have uh, seen the last several chapters with uh, uh, Peter at the forefront. In this twelfth uh, chapter, we, we, we saw this uh, parenthesis in which we, we see the um, persecution against the early church there in this twelfth chapter with, with Herod uh, taking James, the, the, the brother of John, and killing him executing him, taking Peter as well, uh, but couldn't execute him right away because of, of the fact that it was one, one of the feasts of the Jews, the days of the unleavened bread, as we see there in the third verse of, in chapter 12. And that's a, that's a seven-day period of time, Passover being a part of that. And when that was over, Herod had planned to take Peter. He imprisoned him during this time, planned to take him and execute him after that time. Well, we, we saw that Peter was rescued mir miraculously uh, by the Lord, sending an angel to lead him out of the prison. The, the chains fell off, the gates opened up, and Peter found himself uh, out on the streets of Jerusalem. And he headed over to uh, one of the homes nearby. Uh, we, we saw, we just read here that uh, in the fifth, fifth verse here that uh, um, Barnabas and, and Saul had John as their assistant. Well, that's John Mark who wrote the book of Mark. Uh, his mom, Mary, was hosting uh, a, a prayer meeting, which probably was the one of the house churches there in Jerusalem. Um, but they were there praying, and, and, and we saw that, that Peter found his way there, knocked at the gate. Uh, a young uh, servant girl named Rhoda uh, was there to open the gate, and then when she heard Peter's voice, she was so excited, she forgot to open it up for him, you know, and so he's standing out there knocking and wanting to come in, let me in, let me in, let me in, they're after me, they tried to kill me, and nobody's hearing, they're in there telling, the, the, the people are telling uh, uh, Rhoda, no, Peter's not at the door, he's in prison, you know, which leads us to wonder what they were actually praying for or if they believed that God would answer that prayer. Well, Peter was there. He told them what happened. He wound up uh, uh, going someplace and hiding out for a while. And as I mentioned to you, you know, uh, he hid out so well, kept it such a, such a secret that to this very day, we have no idea where he was during that period of time. But we, we see God... Basically, at the end of the 12th chapter, uh, we, we see Herod, uh, who uh, was blaspheming the Lord by taking praise when, on a particular day when he gave an address, and, and we, we talked about that, of course, last time we were together, and uh, he received the praise, he received the worship, God struck him, and as Luke writes, he died with worms. He, being eaten by worms, uh, and he died there in that 23rd verse. And then back to Barnabas and Saul, verse 25, we see that they returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So bringing John Mark with him, uh, with them from Jerusalem to Antioch. And then we find ourselves here in the first verse of chapter 13. We're told that in this church in Antioch, there were five leaders uh, called prophets and teachers. Now, we're not told which ones were prophets, which ones were teachers, or perhaps all five of them had both of those gifts as, as prophets and teachers. We're, we're not really told that, 
But we see, we see the name of we see the name Barnabas and Saul being two of them. Then we see Simeon, who was called Niger. Now, one of the things we find out we 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 see about this church here in Antioch. It's been mentioned before, of course, but uh, this this is the first Gentile church that we know of. Um, as is listed in the scriptures, we see that back in chapter 11, verse 21, uh, that, there, that there were a number of uh, Gentiles uh, who, who were there, um, as well as verse 23 and 24. And we see, according to this particular passage, it is the very first Christian church to send out missionaries to establish other churches. So, so a couple of notab notable things that we have here. But three other men that we are, are introduced to here in this first verse, Simeon, who was called Niger. And there's not a lot that's known about him. Uh, now, he was called Niger, and the word Niger means black, so he was obviously a dark-skinned individual. From where, we don't really know. Some people uh, uh, liken him to a Simon of Cyrene at the end of the Gospels, who uh, help Jesus carry his cross. That could be true, but there's no evidence that it is, but it could be. It could be the same person. Uh, Lu Lucius of, of Cyrene is, is also mentioned here. Um, he is from the city of Cyrene in North Africa, uh, and there, there's some people want to link him to Luke himself. Uh, there's no evidence that that could be true. Uh, there, there's also uh, a Lucius in Romans 16, as Paul the Apostle in that letter is sending his greetings uh, at the end of the letter, uh, a Lucius there, and there's no evidence that it's that person either. But it, he is, we know, a leader there in the church in Antioch. And finally, Manan. Uh, we, we see uh, he was a, a notable person in that he had some social standing. He was raised with Herod the Tetrarch, and he, he is the Herod that we're going to see later on in, in the book of Acts, uh, uh, hearing from Paul the Apostle and his testimony. But uh, we, we see that as he's raised with Herod the Tetrarch, and sometimes, sometimes what they would do is, is they would get, uh, um, as... Herod the Tetrarch was a son of standing. Uh, there, he was raised with this son, and the word, uh, the, the phrase here, raised with him, that can be translated as foster brother. So he probably was brought into the home to be a companion with Herod the Tetrarch and raised in that home. So he knew Herod very, very, very well. And it's just interesting the different directions that these people take. Raised in the same home, uh, we, we see Manan here hearing the gospel and coming to Christ to the point where he actually is a leader in the church there in Antioch. Herod, of course, moves in a different direction. And so, so, so we see these three leaders along with uh, uh, Barnabas and Saul there in the church in Antioch. Now, in verse 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate me, separate to me, I should say, 
Separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So the Holy Spirit speaks to these five men who are leaders in the church in Antioch. And it is extremely important to note what these five men were doing when the Holy Spirit spoke to them. What were they doing? Ministering to the Lord and fasting. As they ministered to the Lord and as they fasted, that's when the Holy Spirit spoke to them. Is that some kind of coincidence? Of course not. Of course not. Because they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, their hearts were in a place that they would receive from the Lord and God, the Holy Spirit, spoke to them, giving them instruction for His plan for this church and especially for Saul and Barnabas. But as they ministered to the Lord, this, this Greek word that, that is translated as ministered, it's the same word that's used in the Septuagint back in ex, Exodus 28. The Septuagint being the Greek version of the Old Testament. Same word that speaks of, of the priest ministering in the tabernacle or in the, or in the temple. Ministering to the Lord. And notice, they're ministering to the Lord. They're not ministering to people. They're ministering to the Lord. Uh, If our service to God is going to be effective, it's got to be service to Him. Of course, the word minister means service, doesn't it? So as, as they were serving the Lord, and as they were fasting, but they were serving the Lord first and foremost. And that's a point that is very, very important that we see here. If we want to minister... If our, if our service is going to be uh, uh, effective for, for the Lord, if we are going, going to see Him being glorified and honored, uh, if we are going to be used by Him to accomplish His purposes, then our service, our ministering, must be first and foremost to Him. And then we are enabled by Him to serve people. But we will be serving them with His heart submitted to his word. Paul notes that this was the attitude of the Macedonian believers as he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. And not only as we had hoped, Paul writes, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So even as, as Paul the apostle had gone to Corinth, he, as he established or, uh, uh, he's, uh, as he's writing this letter to the Corinthians, writing of the Macedonian churches and the people there, he, he, he writes about how they gave themselves to the Lord, and then as they had done that, then they submitted themselves also to these leaders in terms of the work that was taking place there in Macedonia. Um, in Colossians chapter 3, again, the Apostle Paul writing, verses 23 and 24, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Note that, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Very, very important principle. 
and, and Paul cites a reason for that. He basically says, hey, come on, guys. Who's the one who saved you? Who's the one who died for your sins? Who's the one who created you? Our service is to the Lord Jesus first and foremost, and then to others, focusing on serving Him and then serving others, really under the umbrella of serving Him. That's how that has to work. Paul writes about this from a personal perspective to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, verses 6 through 10, we'll read. Paul writes to them, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. So turning away to a different gospel, which is not another, another gospel which is really not a gospel at all, but they're turning to that, just a, a different uh, um, a, a, a different doctrine. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So he is exhorting the Galatians to not be turned away from the gospel that they received from him that we see in the New Testament. He says, if anyone, if we would come back to you with a different gospel, or if an angel would come to you with a different gospel, let us all be accursed. In other words, let us all rot in hell. That's basically what that means. That's strong. That is powerful, isn't it? And basically, if we believe a different gospel, if we believe different teachings than what we see in the New Testament, if we don't believe that Jesus Christ actually is God manifest in the flesh, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, that He was born of a virgin, that He lived a perfect life, and as the Lamb of God died for our sins, as He took our sins upon Himself, as the sacrifice for those sins, in our place, that substitutionary death. If we don't believe that, we can't be saved, and we will rot in hell, won't we? That's the reality of this. And anyone who comes with a message disagreeing with what we already have taught you, let that person be accursed. And then he makes the point for, do I, do I serve men or God? If I serve men, in other words, if I told people what they want to hear, if I just tell people things that are comfortable for them, I would be serving people rather than God. 
But I'm serving God. I'm serving Jesus Christ. I'm going to be loyal to him. I'm going to honor him. I'm going to speak what he tells me to speak. I'm going to speak the truth of the gospel. And, and in our day, what that means is, in terms of Christ, of course, it, and, and the gospel, it's the New Testament. It's the New Testament. Staying true to the New Testament. Speaking only that. There's a danger of compromise of truth when we desire to minister to people before we minister to God. Or if we love people before we love God. And we see that taking place within the church today. This compromise is, 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 is the exact compromise that takes place in, in the United Methodist Church. And other churches like that who are not only approving of homosexual marriages, but placing in the pulpits as pastors gay men and lesbians who are walking in sin. Now, we have to add that, that that's not the only sin that would eliminate someone from being able to lead a church in that way. You know, and, and it's not just sexual sin. It's not the only sexual sin. You know, uh, uh, someone who, I mean, you've got somebody sleeping around in a heterosexual relationships. Of course, that person's disqualified too. But w wanting to love people before we love God, if we're not under the umbrella of love for God first and love for people secondly. And if I feel like in loving somebody, I need to do something, but that something is something that God pro prohibits, then I can't do that for them. And, and I think that's something that's taking place in our culture. The compromise of God's word by serving and loving people first and loving God secondly. But that's, the, but that's not the way the commandments come to us. Jesus said the greatest commandment is this. The number one commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. So the second, the other one has priority. The first, love God. The second is love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love people, but I'm never to love a person outside of the context of love for God first. Never. Bottom line is, we might love someone and do something for them. In fact, something that might want them, we, we might want them to be happy and blessed. And so we, 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 well, in the context of what we're talking about, approve of a relationship because we don't want them to be unhappy now. But what are we doing? We're, we're, we're removing the preaching of the gospel. The only thing that can save their soul. The only thing that can save their soul. This past week, I was saddened and um, somewhat disturbed um, reading that Amy Grant and her husband, Vince Gill, are going to be hosting a same-sex wedding at their farm. Uh, this uh, person for whom they're doing this is, is Amy's uh, niece. And she's marrying another woman. And, uh, 
Amy Grant and Vince Gill are opening up their farm for this wedding. Um, and apparently, for, for in recent years, she has, <coughs> excuse me, she has been uh, uh, more and more vocal in her support for the LGBTQ community. Um, but it's disturbing to me. You know, um, years ago, and I'm, I'm talking, gosh, 35, 40 years ago, when her music first came out, um, her music ministered to, to my wife in a way that was incredible. I mean, she would hear her music and it would just soothe her heart. She, it would, she'd get back to where she needed to be with the Lord. You know, I had a tough day with the kids and, and all, you know. And it, the Lord used her in my honey's life big time, big time. And now she's doing this. I, I read se several articles about this. As I, I came across it, I go, whoa. So I, I just kind of, you know, you go on the Internet, you look up some articles and stuff. And one of the quotes from her, I, I want to read this to you. This was uh, quoted from the Washington Post, actually. She said, honestly, from a faith perspective, I do always say, Jesus, you just narrowed it down to two things, love God and love each other. I mean, hey, that's pretty simple. So she feels like she's loving her niece. And I would say she's not. I would say that she's more, hap more, more concerned about her happiness now than the condition of her soul. Doesn't seem to be that that's the case with her. Franklin Graham responded to, to this news on Twitter by saying this. He said, Amy Grant announced that she and her husband, Vince Gill, are going to host a same-sex wedding on their farm for her niece. Yes, we are to love God and love each other. But if we love God, we will seek to obey his word. Jesus told us, if you love me, keep my commandments. God defines what is sin, not us. And his word is clear that homosexuality is sin. Thank God for people like that who have a national stage that they can say things like this. And, and Franklin Graham has it right. It's not, he doesn't have, he's not taking the popular position He's taking the right one, right? It's not the popular one, but the right one. It's the biblical view. And I'm sure that Amy Grant loves her niece, but she's loving her in a love that is not first submitted to God. And that's a sad thing. One thing for sure, when we, like Franklin Graham, when we minister to the Lord first and we stay true to his word, we're going to find opposition. Isn't there a lot of opposition in our culture and even within the church to something like what Frank Franklin Graham would say? Maybe I should say within the so-called church. Uh, some who call themselves as members of the church or denominations which have strayed away from being a true New Testament church believing in the New Testament. But, you know, from hate speech and all would be accused of. But guys, you know, uh, 
let's acknowledge this. It can be a hard thing. It can be a hard thing to love God first and love people second. For people that we truly have a strong affection for, like I'm sure Amy Grant does with her niece. It's hard to tell somebody that you love them and at the same time they will spend eternity apart from God because of their sin. Because that doesn't feel like a loving thing when you hear it. But it's a loving thing to tell people in the right way, certainly. You know, um, one of the things we've quoted from the Apostle Paul already, but one of the things that makes him so attractive is his own humility as he stated in his letter to, uh, to, to Timothy that he's the chief of all sinners. And if we go that route, guys, if we include ourselves as those who deserve to spend eternity apart from God in a place called hell, we all deserve it, don't we? Let me ask that question again. We all deserve it, don't we? And we do. Each one of us do. So, obviously, we are not better than anybody else. But others will see us as thinking that we are in self-righteousness, right? Because we're not going to go to hell, but you are. You know what I mean? Let's be honest about that. You know, I have sinned too, and I deserve to go there too, but... God, in his love for me, sent Jesus to die for me, my sins. He sent him to die for your sins, too. I've received Christ, so I know I'm going to heaven because of the righteousness I have because of Jesus. And if you don't receive Jesus, you will, you, you'll receive your, your just penalty. But if you do receive Jesus, you'll get his righteousness, too. He died in your place. You'll go to heaven. Not because you become a good person, but because Jesus died for you. That's why. Just like he died for me. So please come to heaven with me. You know, I mean, that kind of thing, you know. I mean, chief of all sinners, let's paint ourselves in that kind of a light. Now, something else they were doing is fasting. They were ministering to the Lord first and foremost, and they were fasting. Um. The way it's worded here, it seems to be their normal activity. I'm sure they weren't fasting all the time. It could be that they were fasting for certain periods of time, maybe one week a month, maybe one day a week. I don't know, whatever it may, may have been. Maybe three days out of, the, out, out of a week, like what we're going to be doing this next week. We don't know exactly, but it seemed to be their normal spiritual activity. That's norm normally what they would do. And see, it's, it's in this place where they're serving the Lord first and foremost and fasting as they're seeking the Lord. Um, the, the Bible often connects fasting with, with times of prayer. And these times of prayer are important times of prayer, vigilant prayer, uh, passionate prayer. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, we see... Uh, Nehemiah writing, so it was when I heard these words, when he heard about what's going on in Jerusalem and the walls around the city, 
that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. God, do something. God, give us direction. God, help us in the fasting and prayer. Daniel 9.3, Daniel said, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Pastor Chuck Smith wrote this, What is fasting? It is giving up something that feeds the flesh, food, entertainment, TV, to partake of that which feeds the spirit, prayer. Meditation, feeding on the Word. And so, it's that giving something up for the flesh. It doesn't have to be food. It most often is. For some people, because of some kind of illness or something, you can't do that. Or maybe as we get older, it gets harder to do something like that, you know? Um, with, with my precious wife again, a few years ago, we were going through this week first week of the month, and I think at that year, this was several years ago, probably five years ago or something, we did four days of fasting and prayer. After three, it really, be, it began to affect her physically. She started, I mean, she, she, she was having a low, low blood sugar thing going on with her. That's something we have to be careful of, you know. And so, I remember Shar uh, was with her. She said, what should I do? Get her something to eat. <laughs> get her something to eat, you know. Get her, get her some orange juice first. If we got some orange juice in the house, and just get her something to eat, you know. And, and and she was okay, but it was a blood sugar thing that that she went through with that. So we do have to be careful. Fast from TV. You know, fast from uh, fast from the internet. That could be a good one. Um, from something in order to focus on the things of God. Now, now, Scripture nowhere commands that we are to fast, but Jesus, as he spoke to his followers, he spoke in such a way that he just simply assumed that they would because it's just, just a, a normal process. And in Matthew 6, 16 to 18, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Moreover, when you fast... You know, it's like, we all do, so when we do, right, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to be fasting, appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who's in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. It's really a thing that's between you and God. Now, a question might arise. Well, we're going to be doing this three days thing. We're announcing that's what we're doing. So everybody's going to know that we're fasting. What about that? Well, the thing is that we're, we're going to come together as a, as a church to do this why don't we just spread it around with everybody, you know, and this, this, uh, this thing about, you know, the, the, the sad countenance, you know, walk around and, <laughs> and your friends say, oh, what's wrong? Oh, I'm fasting, <laughs> you know. Uh, it, it, no, you know, it, it's, don't put on that face. And it's like, that simply out, is out of, a, out of a, some kind of a need or desire simply to be recognized for being so spiritual, right? 
No. People don't need to know. And we don't need to tell other people what we're doing. Let's, go, let's come together and do this and just seek the Lord. Our Father will reward secretly. Again, it's just important to note that these men were serving the Lord and fasting. And while they were doing these things, and because it's a reflection of the heart, the heart's in a place where they were doing this, they're open to hear from the Holy Spirit and open to respond to what it is that he says. So what did the Holy Spirit say? Well, separate to me. I've got two guys here, Barnabas and Saul. Separate them to me. That's really what consecration is all about, being separated unto God, away from other things and unto Him. That's consecration. It's, it's a, a very similar thing to sanctification, but the, the sanctification is, is, is kind of like the spiritual work. It results in, 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 in physical action, of course, but the consecration is, I am deliberately setting myself aside, away from this, and unto the Lord to serve Him. So it's something that all of us need to commit to. We need to commit acts of consecration. Just uh, where we in our own hearts are setting ourselves aside, setting ourselves apart, excuse me, not aside, but apart to serve Him to serve Him. It's a very important principle for us in our service to the Lord. You know, um, it was now 14 years ago, almost 15 years ago, that uh, a young Spanish couple was here with us, Yvonne and Eonite, and we had been led by the Lord to put them through the Bible college for a couple of years, and it was in 2008 when they graduated and uh, went back to Spain. And, and this is exactly what they did. That's what, that's what we did as a church. We, we, we separated unto him, this young couple, and they went back to Spain for the purpose of serving him there. And, and the church is doing very, very well. They're doing very, very well. You know, and God's blessing them. And it's just a, a blessing to see what God is doing. But that's what they've done. And we as a church, we heard what the Holy Spirit was saying. They were a part of all this. You were a part of all this. And now they're there serving the Lord. It's just a blessing to see what God has, has done. But, but notice that as we see... Uh, verse 2, the Holy Spirit says, uh, separate them for the work to which I have called them. And then verse 3, then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So this indicates that they did some further fasting and praying. Then they laid their hands on them and sent them away to the work that the Holy Spirit had called them to. But notice verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. 
It's the Holy Spirit who sent them, not the church. Right? The Holy Spirit makes the call. He places the call. A church hears the call, responds to the call, and does the act of sending out, but it's actually the Holy Spirit who does it. Does that work through that church. So the church in Antioch, led by these five men, was used by God to send Saul and Barnabas out on this first, first missionary journey. And so in verse 4, we begin to see what actually takes place in this journey. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now Seleucia is the port city, which would be the port uh, for the city of Antioch. It's about 16 miles away, 16 miles inland. Uh, Antioch would be then, then there to Seleucia, and they sailed from Seleucia to the island of Cyprus. Now we've heard um, this island being mentioned before, if you recall, Barnabas himself was from Cyprus. They went first, of course, to Cyprus. They arrived in Salamis, which is one of the, the cities there. That's the city where they laid port. They preached the word of God in the synagogues, plural, of the Jews. So uh, Salamis was a, a fairly decent-sized city in which there were a number of Jews in the city in which there were a number of synagogues. Um, if, if there was in a city uh, more than or 10 or more Jews, a synagogue would be established in that city. Uh, and we don't know how many synagogues there were. We don't know how many Jews there were. But there were several because we see there that they went to the synagogues uh, and preached the word of God there in the synagogues. Now, it's important to note that the purpose, the purpose for missions work is to preach the Word of God. Other things take place. There are a lot of humanitarian things that take place, you know, uh, digging wells to find fresh water, um, establishing churches, planting churches, and that's exactly what we're going to be seeing taking place because of that's, that's part of what happens when the Word of God is being preached. You know, people hear the Word of God, receive the Word of God, begin to trust in Christ, and now they need a church. So that's the one thing that takes place. Um, building hospital, hospitals, you know, um, the, the, the church has been doing this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But we see it taking place here first, here on the island of Cyprus, as Barnabas and Saul went there preaching the word of God in the synagogues. There's also something we see that, that the Apostle Paul, and we see here right here in this very passage that, that it is where, where Saul begins to be called Paul. But um, the Apostle Paul always would go to the synagogues first. Whenever we see him going into a new city, we're going to see that throughout the book of Acts, on not only this missionary journey, but his, his second and his third, always goes to the synagogues first. And, and we see that principle laid out here in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew and also for the Greek. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. 
So for the Jew first, he would always go to the synagogue first. Uh, Later in this chapter, verse 46, then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, speaking obviously to a group of Jews who were rejecting them, by the way. But since you reject it, see, there we go, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. This is interesting. Since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, wow. Paul says for someone who rejects the gospel, they themselves are are, are saying that they themselves are not worthy to receive everlasting life. They're judging themselves to be unworthy of everlasting life. But of course, all of us are. We have judged ourselves unworthy of everlasting life, and so we turn to Christ so that we can have everlasting life. Receive the free gift of eternal life through Him, right? But you know, even after chapter 15, when we get to chapter 15 here in Acts, we're going to see that uh, there's a, a council that takes place in Jerusalem because the word of God now is being preached to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are coming to Christ. And there was this question, what do we do with the Gentiles who are coming to Jesus? Do they, so, some were saying, you know, the, 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 many of the, the Pharisees who were coming to Christ were actually beginning to say that, well, you know, Jesus was a Jew, we're Jews, you know, this is a Jewish sect. You have to become a Jew. And so you have to do the things that Jews do. And, all. and so that became an issue. And the council in Jerusalem in chapter 15 of Acts settled that issue. And of course, settled in such a way that, you know, it's like, let's not be expecting Gentiles to become Jews. They're turning to Christ, not to Judaism. They're turning to Jesus. So let's let them do that. And, and, and uh, and that's just a very quick summary of, of, of what they said. But the point being that even after that, Paul still would go into the synagogues first to preach the gospel there, following that principle that is cited in Romans 1.16 that we just spoke of. And it could very well be that in the synagogues would be found not just simply Jewish believers, but Gentiles who became what would be called a God-fearer, fearers of God, and acknowledging the God of the Jews as the true God and wanting to worship Him with the Jewish people. He would turn to the synagogues, and obviously those were the Gentiles he would find first, people, Gentiles who had you know, a, a desire in their heart to worship God. You know, that's why they were there. And then, then, then he would speak to the other Gentiles in the city. And it's mentioned for us here in this fifth verse that John was their assistant. And we'll be seeing uh, in this next section here in chapter 13 some issues related to that. Now, verse 6. When they had gone through this island to Paphos, now that would have been all the way to the other side of the island, so they basically landed on the east side of Cyprus 
and they traveled overland uh, to the to the west side of Cyprus, where this city Paphos is. There, and, and that, that's by the way the, the the capital of of the island, and that's why the um, proconsul, the uh, um, proconsul was there in that particular city. That's where he lived. And, and by the way, it was common for leaders, uh, at the political leaders at this time, to have some, you know, sorcerers, magicians around them. You know, because they wanted they wanted some power and they wanted some things done. You remember that that way back with with Moses when he confronted uh, um, the. Um, anyway, you guys know the story. The Pharaoh, Pharaoh, they just slipped my mind. The Pharaoh of Egypt. Uh, when they confronted the Pharaoh, he had a couple of magicians with him. Remember? And, and the things with the, with the rods and the snakes and all that. Yeah. Um, so common practice. So he, he was there. He, th this uh, 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 magician was there with the proconsul. Uh, a Jewish name, a Jewish by who, whose name, he, he took this name Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus. Later on, what is it that we see Paul the Apostle calling him? Son of the devil. We'll speak on that in just a few minutes. But anyway, they arrive at Paphos, and, and it's probably about a 90-mile journey or so uh, across the island, and, and they find this man, uh, Sergius Paulus, wanted to hear the Word of God, sought to hear the Word of God. Now, did he want to hear it for himself, or did he just want to know what these guys are up to on his island? Maybe a little of both. But whatever it is, the Word of God came forth and it made an impact. Let's continue reading. Elimus the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them. So he withstood Barnabas and Saul, seeking, this was his motive, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Have you guys found people in your own lives, maybe especially when you first came to Christ, people around you who attempted to turn you away from believing in Jesus? It happens all the time, doesn't it? it happens all the time. You know, there's a very uh, famous incident in, in the, the life of uh, John Lennon or a period in his life, really, when it certainly appeared that he had received Christ as his Savior. He was talking about Jesus and, and, and all. And, and um, there, there's been a lot of talk about the fact that, that John did come to Christ, but he, he indeed was talking about it. But looking into that further, I, 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 I looked into this, and uh, I, I saw that it was reported that he stopped because his wife, Yoko Ono, basically turned him away from Jesus. Happens all the time. Well, as he was doing this, 
I love the apostle, the apostle Paul here. Of course, here in verse 9 we see he finally is called Paul. Finally we can start calling him Paul. Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. I mean, he just, his, 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 it wasn't just a gaze, but he was just staring, like staring him down. And he said, oh, full of all deceit and fraud. Now, as we look at this, we already see that he was a false prophet, a sorcerer, a Jewish person who took the name Son of Jesus, now wanting to turn his proconsul away from the faith. Now that could be nothing more than just wanting to keep his job. What's going to happen when the proconsul turns to Jesus? He doesn't need a magician around anymore. He said to him, all full of deceit and fraud. Now, you're going to see a lot of things said here which are characteristic of Satan and his demons. It's characteristic of the demonic realm. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? Now, a lot said in that 10th verse about the works, the way that, that our enemy, Satan and his demons, work in our culture and through people to pervert the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guys, we've got to see the reality of the spiritual warfare that's going on here. And here, in this particular case, the spiritual warfare is centered on, or centered around the salvation of a particular person who's hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ for the very first time. Spiritual warfare. It's always taking place. One of the things that's interesting about this, the, the, the city Paphos is that it was a center for the worship of Aphrodite. Uh, she's also known with by the name of Venus, but she was a goddess of fertility. If you've seen any statues of, of her, uh, it, it, there's a statue and, and all these eggs around. Have you ever seen that? Am I making any sense to you? If, you, if you've seen it, then you've got, what, what, what kind of garb is that? Well, those, those are eggs. She's the goddess of fertility. And so sexual activity is a huge part of uh, worshiping her. And that's what the city of Paphos was all about. The, the, the people who would worship Aphrodite, uh, well, well there, there would be uh, temple prostitutes who would go, go into the streets, and the, the money earned would go to the temple. Uh, that, 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 that's what this worship of Aphrodite was all about. Um, by the way, the term that we know of aphrodisiac comes from that word. Well, that's what that culture was like that's what this, this uh, sorcerer was all about, coming from that particular perspective. But you know, when we think about the, a culture like that, centered on sexual activity, hmm, ours is not a lot different, is it? Not a lot different. 
We've got to be aware today about one about the ways that spiritual warfare is taking place, not simply within the church, but within the culture as well. First, First Chronicles 12.32 says that the sons of Issachar had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. And we, we need to seek God for understanding of our times to know how we need, we need to respond. Well, this proconsul, um, we, we see that as he heard the gospel, that, this, that, that Elimus opposed Saul and Barnabas, desiring to turn him away from faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul just lets him have it, saying these things about him. Again, deceit and all, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of God? In John 8, 44, we see Jesus saying this, and he says this to the Jewish leaders. He says, you are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. Any culture that is heavily impacted by the demonic realm is going to be a culture that lies. Sexual activity is going to be an important part of that culture. You know, guys, as our, as our country has turned further and further and further away from the truth of the gospel, it's becoming more and more and more like a city like Paphos or a city like Corinth or many cities. Um, that's what our culture is becoming like. It's interesting that while he called himself the son of Jesus, Paul called him the son of the devil. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 14 and 15, we see Paul writing this, It's no wonder for Satan himself transformed himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their work. What's that saying? That's, that's interesting. That is saying that there are many people who are calling themselves ministers of righteousness who are actually ministers of the devil, ministers of darkness. Hmm. wonder how many people like that are standing behind Christian pulpits today. Just got to wonder. Just got to wonder. 1 John 3.10 says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Well, we see Elamus setting himself in that place. In this place where he was uh, 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 honoring the things of the Lord. And as Paul said, perverting the straight ways of the Lord. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes, Do all things without complaining and disputing. We could talk a while about that, but we're not going to. That you may become blameless and harmless. Now look at this. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Shining as lights in this world that is crooked and perverse. 
Well, we see that Elimus receives his judgment. Verse 11, And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately dark, a darkness fell, fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Isn't it interesting that Elimus, in his rejection of the gospel, actually wanted to turn his proconsul away from the gospel, he's stricken with blindness for a time. A number of years before this, Saul of Tarsus received the gospel for the first time, turned to Christ. He was blinded by the glory of Christ, and then those scales fell from his head as he was prayed for. Just interesting to see that. And then we see verse 13, or verse 12, excuse me. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It wasn't because of what he saw, but he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Signs and wonders, miracles and gifts of the Spirit, all confirmation of the truth of God's word. Confirmation of the truth of God's word word. And so, we see this man, Sergius Paulus, coming to Christ. God help us as we seek to be used by the Lord, that we would be ministering first and foremost, serving first and foremost, loving first and foremost God himself. Amen? And then loving others within the context of that love. We won't steer people in the wrong way. We can make enemies. We can be accused of not loving people that we do love. That we might be even told that. I thought you loved me. But it would be like a child telling his parents or her parents, I thought you loved me when they're being spanked, when they're being disciplined when something good actually is taking place, which is a necessary pleasant. And it's not a pleasant thing to hear that we're a sinner destined to eternal damnation. It's not a, a comfortable thing to hear. But every person is born in that condition. And Jesus, by His grace, calls us to Himself. And you know what, guys? He uses people to bring those people to Jesus. Just bring them to Jesus, talking about Jesus. So let's be faithful to do that. There is a spiritual warfare, a spiritual battle. As Paul writes in Ephesians 6:12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. You know, the gospel in our culture has many enemies but they're not really our enemies. They're not the enemies of God. 
in that particular sense. Now, all of us are at enmity with God before we come to Christ, yes. But our warfare is really taking place with demons. With demons. Let's always remember that. And the people that he uses to come against us aren't necessarily the ones that we need to be doing war against. We want to win them to Jesus, don't we? We need to love them, truly love them, loving God first, as he's commanded. And Father, help us to do that. Help us, Lord, to love even as you have loved us. Lord, might we be faithful to serve you. Might we be faithful to pray. Might we be faithful to set ourselves aside for a period of time, a day, a couple days, a few days, whatever it may be, Lord, to, 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 to fast and pray. Lord, seeking you for direction, seeking you, Lord, for help, seeking you for, for strength, seeking you, Lord, for your power to be involved in situations and in people's lives around us, Lord. And so, God, have your way with us. Be glorified in this time. Be glorified in our hearts. And we just thank you. Have your way now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.